0: Uh, my name's Lachlan, and we couldn't find a music stand tonight, so the big wooden lexon comes out. Makes it look a bit serious, doesn't it? <coughs> uh, my name's Lachlan, I'm one of the pastors here at Uni Church. It's a joy to be together tonight, to press into that reading that Angela's just read for us, this part of God's Word that he has for us this evening. Uh, one of the things you need to know about me, and I don't get along to newish too often, so new people might not know this yet, uh, but I'm a nerd. Um, You might tell it by the way I look, Uh, I I don't know, but I'm a nerd. I love jigsaw puzzles, so my wife and I just finished one yesterday. Uh, In my undergraduate studies when I was a uni student, I majored in pure maths and classical Greek. Great fun, I enjoyed it, loved it. Uh, When we were studying classical Greek, one of the people that we got to study and read was Plato, the philosopher, and we got to read him describe the death of his teacher and mentor, Socrates. Socrates. Some of you might be familiar with the story. Socrates was arrested and sentenced to death as a criminal because of some of the things that he was teaching, introducing people to foreign gods he was accused of. And so Socrates was sentenced to death by drinking a poison, hemlock. As Plato records the end of Socrates' life, Socrates seems very calm about this. He's approaching death not with any anguish, but in a calm manner, using it as an opportunity to teach his followers, to teach his learners. One of the lessons that Socrates believed was that the soul is what is true and pure and that the body is a bit of a prison for the soul. So for him, death was an escape. He was very calm as he looked ahead at death to come. And there are others in the world who face death with that same kind of calmness. Perhaps characters in TV shows or movies that you've watched, people that you can think of who, when when death is just around the corner, they don't seem anxious, but they approach it very calmly. Tonight, we see Jesus approaching death. Now, he's known that this was coming for some time. Since chapter 9 in Luke's Gospel, Jesus has set his face towards Jerusalem. He knows that when he gets to Jerusalem, he's going to be arrested and mocked and beaten and spat on and killed and three days later rise again. So, Jesus has known that his death is coming. He's turned up in Jerusalem a week ago. Now tonight we see him on the eve of his death and he doesn't look very calm. In fact, we find Jesus in anguish. And it raises the question, why? Has Jesus suddenly lost his heart? He's been walking towards Jerusalem all this time but now finally he's like, I can't go through with this. Is that what's going on? Now perhaps he's a weaker man than Socrates. Socrates could face death calmly, but Jesus knows, afraid. Is that what's going on? What is it about Jesus' death that has him so troubled? As we answer these questions tonight, we'll see a picture, not just of what Jesus' death means, but through seeing what Jesus' death means, we'll get an insight into what our death means and how we can prepare for that. We'll get an insight in how we can prepare for however much life God gives us between now and when we die. That might not sound like the most fun evening, but it's vitally important for us as we consider this sobering passage. So let me pray that God would teach us tonight. Father, thank you so much that you tell us the truth about ourselves. Thank you that when we come to you, we don't have to hide our faults or our flaws that we're so busy most of the week trying to cover up from other people. We don't have to hide them from you because you already know them all. So please tonight, strengthen us by the example of Jesus to be better. Strengthen us to flee from sin. Strengthen us to pray, to submit to injustice. Strengthen us to follow you even to death. In Jesus' name, Amen. We're picking up the story tonight in Luke 22 verse 39. Uh, Flick with me there in your Bible. If you've got a paper Bible there, the sound of flicking pages is great. It should already be open. If you're on an electronic Bible, can I commend to you a paper Bible? They are great. No, it's old school. Uh, but you can scan back through the passages a bit quicker. And if we flick to somewhere else, you can flick there quickly too. So I do love the old paper Bible. But we're in Luke 22, verse 39. And as we walk through this story, we're going to go through it twice across the night. The first time we'll be particularly focusing in on Jesus. What's happening to him through these scenes? And then once we've got into the end with Jesus, we're going to go back to the start again and watch the disciples. What's happening for the disciples through this story? So Luke 22, verse 39. Jesus went out and made his way, as usual, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. So Jesus has turned up in Jerusalem a week ago, and generally during the day, he'd go and teach in the temple, but then at nighttime, he'd take this three-kilometer walk out of the city to a mountain covered in olive trees, the Mount of Olives. Uh, this, by the way, was why the religious leaders needed an, an inside man to arrest Jesus. So, for a while throughout Luke's story, we've been hearing that these people wanted to arrest and kill Jesus, but they couldn't find the opportunity. Well, they didn't know where he went at night. They didn't want to arrest him in front of the crowd. So, Judas took the money to betray Jesus. Jesus. So, anyway, on this particular night, the eve of Jesus' birth... Uh, oh, not birth. What am I saying? It's born a, a while ago. Uh... Must have had too much coffee today. It's the eve of Jesus' death. We'll get it right. Uh, The final night of Jesus' life, he heads out as usual to the Mount of Olives. At verse 40, he asks his disciples to pray. And then verse 41, he withdraws from the disciples about a stone's throw, kneels down and begins to pray. So this is the final night of Jesus' life. It's late at night. The rest of the city has fallen asleep. And we find Jesus praying. Again, this wasn't uncommon for Jesus. He often withdrew through his life into the quiet places to pray. But here at a pivotal moment, as he hangs on the edge, about to die, I wonder what Jesus is going to be asking for. What would you be asking for if you knew that death was coming? Have a look, verse 42. Father, if you are willing, take this cup away from me, Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. It's a bit of an odd request, and we'll probe into that in a sec. But I want you to notice, firstly, that Jesus prays to the Father. Though Jesus is fully God, we've seen that as we walked through Luke, and it will be reinforced for us next week. Though Jesus is fully God, He's not all that there is to God. He's God the Son, sharing eternally in deity with God the Father and God the Spirit. As God the Son, He's been eternally in communion with God the Father, speaking, hearing, submitting, obeying. And so here we find Jesus praying to His Father, knowing that He'll be heard by one who loves Him immeasurably, one who is always there for Him and has been since eternity past. Jesus prays to His Father who listens. And He asks His Father, if you are willing, take this cup away from me. Now, what on earth is He asking? What is this cup? If you were with us last week, you would have seen Jesus sharing a meal with his close followers, the disciples. And there was a cup in that story. They drank wine from it. Has Jesus now carried that cup with him to the Mount of Olives, but it's not matching his clothing. He's like, man, I just want this cup away. That wouldn't make much sense. It's not going to be about that cup. Now, the context for this cup actually comes from the Old Testament. Some passages written hundreds of years before Jesus came on the scene. So, have a look on the screen. Back to Psalm 75, verse 8. We find a cup in the Old Testament that you definitely don't want to drink. There's a cup in the Lord's hand full of wine blended with spices, and he pours from it. All the wicked of the earth will drink, draining it to the dregs. This is a cup that the wicked drink. It gets filled out for us in Isaiah 51, verse 22 to 23. This is what your Lord says, Yahweh, even your God who defends his people. Look, I've removed the cup of staggering from your hand, that goblet, the cup of my fury. You'll never drink it again. I'll put it into the hands of your tormentors. So what's the cup described in these two passages? It's the cup of God's fury. It's the cup of God's anger, his intense anger. I don't know if you have thought of God in that way before, but since humanity first rebelled against God, God has been angry. Not in a selfish way, not in an unreasonable, overbearing or childish way, but like the anger you might feel towards a criminal, a righteous anger that's longing for justice. Since the very first time that humans rebelled against God, God has been filling up this cup of His fury there were particular times when God poured out some of this cup on the earth, when he wiped out the whole or most of humanity with a a flood, because humanity was always doing wicked things all the time, or when he wiped out Sodom and Gomorrah in an instant with sulfur from heaven. I mean, particular moments in history where God has poured out from this cup, but on the whole, God has been storing up his anger, not giving us as humans what we deserve patiently overlooking us rogue traitors who have declared autonomy against God, saying, I want to rule my own life, rather than submitting to God's loving rule. Throughout history, God has been patiently waiting, storing up his anger, waiting until this day when Jesus would come and drink that cup to the dregs. See, when Jesus died, there was so much more going on than the tragic early death of an innocent man. In Jesus' death, the anger of God was being dealt with, the anger that you deserve, and you do deserve it, I deserve it, the anger that we deserve for our rebellion against God, all of that was being experienced by God the Son, so that there's nothing left for us to experience. Rowan so helpfully last week filled out the way that Jesus' death was a substitution for us, Him dying in our place, And what we're seeing tonight is that what Jesus took for us is all of the anger that we deserve. Jesus took that so that we don't have to. And so Jesus prays as he looks ahead at this anger from God, he prays, Father, if you're willing, take this cup from me. Jesus here isn't freaking out about the physical pain that he's about to suffer. It was going to be excruciating, but Jesus is anxious that he's about to experience the full measure of God's anger at human sin. That is so much more than any physical pain. The eternal and blessed relationship between God the Father and God the Son, it's about to be momentarily broken. The one who knew no sin, Jesus who had lived a perfect life, pure, holy, the Son of God, is about to bear sin. I was trying to think through how we can start to feel something of what Jesus might be feeling at this point. I don't think we can get close, but I want you to start thinking about what the grossest thing that you could imagine eating would be. Just get that picture in your mind. might just be broccoli, right? uh, might be some bodily substance. Uh, we used to ask a question in youth group, um, see if you like this one. We used to love this one in youth group. Would you rather eat poo-flavoured ice cream or ice cream-flavoured poop? It's a tough, tough one at that point. Like, neither of those are good. But think about eating one of them. I want to see that look of disgust on your face. And I'm seeing some of it. That, that horror at the thought of consuming something that is so disgusting. How much more, and, and so much more, disgusted is Jesus at the thought of bearing sin. Sin is contrary to his nature. And yet here, this perfect one who has known no sin is about to be treated as though he has committed all the sins that have ever been committed on earth. That is horrible. He prays, Father, if you're willing, take this cup from me. There's been some recent pushback against this idea of Jesus' death. On a couple of fronts, we can't go into all of them, but what I want to pick up on tonight is that some people have said, look, if Jesus' death was him taking the anger of God, then this sounds like cosmic child abuse. A father heaping undeserved punishment on his son. And they look at a passage like this and say, look, it sounds like Jesus is being forced to do something he doesn't want to do. But notice that Jesus' prayer goes on. He's not an unwilling participant. Yes, he's horrified at what's about to happen. Yes, he wants another way through it. But his prayer goes on in verse 42. Nevertheless, not my will but yours be done. The plan for the salvation of humanity, like all of God's actions, is a united plan of Father, Son, and Spirit. Everything that God does is one action of the three persons that make up our one God. And so in this moment of prayer, we find Jesus expressing his emotion, expressing his instinctive reaction to what's about to happen, but then he resolves himself. And voluntarily, as an active agent in the plan of salvation, Jesus will head to the cross and die. So this is no cosmic child abuse. It's the profoundly loving action of our triune God who takes on himself the pain that justice requires so that we, rebellious humanity, can lay down our weapons, lay down our rebellion and come back to him with joy, not with terror. So, Jesus' request is quite short, but you'll notice verse 43 that he prays for some time. An angel from heaven appeared to Jesus, strengthening him. Being in anguish, he prayed more fervently, and his sweat became like drops of blood falling to the ground. I want you to try to picture Jesus here. This is the Lord of life on a mountain late at night in the darkness, praying fervently, drenched in sweat as he grapples with what he's about to undergo. As you picture him there, do you see what it cost for your sin to be forgiven? I don't know about you, but sometimes I can minimize what my forgiveness cost God. I can think, okay, sure, Jesus died, but a few days later he came back to life again. No real biggie for God to die on the cross. It's like the rich person that gives away a million dollars, but they're a billionaire, so a million dollars might look great, but it's not really much to them. And so when I think about Jesus' death in that way, I can start to think that sin is just not a big thing either. I just keep sinning, Jesus died for it, it's fine. But that's wrong thinking. Jesus' agony here, as he battles the inner temptation to avoid the cross, to just go straight back to the glory that he once shared, Jesus' inner temptation, battling to avoid the cross, it's an insight into the price that he paid to free you, to free me from our sin. He experienced the full anger that had been stored up against all human wickedness across the whole of time and space. As I see Jesus here, I think to myself, how can I go on living in sin? How can I go on living in sin when I see the price that was paid to free me from that sin? How dare I go on willfully disobeying the God who did this for me? Now, sure, I'm going to stumble at times, but if I ever make plans to sin, I've forgotten at that point the cost that it was to Jesus to save me. Do not make plans to sin this week. If you've already got plans to sin, change them. Don't plan to sleep with your boyfriend or your girlfriend this week. Don't plan to spread that juicy gossip that you've heard at church tonight. Don't plan to lie to your parents. Don't plan to steal from your work. Don't plan to get so wildly drunk that you don't know where you are. Don't plan to sin. I don't know what plans you have to sin this week, whether they're things that you're planning to do or things that you're planning not to do, but change those plans tonight. Jesus' agonizing prayer teaches us the true nature of his death for us and what a price that he paid. He paid the penalty for that sin that you're planning. He paid it to free you from that sin. So don't make plans to sin. And in the moment of temptation, when some sin does come upon you and you're tossing up whether or not to commit it, picture Jesus in the garden this night. Picture him agonizing in prayer, anguish dripping with sweat, saying, Father, take this cup away from me. Well, having prayed, Jesus now moves towards this death and he starts being treated like a criminal. So you see verse 45, he gets up from prayer and he goes back to his disciples and they're sleeping. He's rebuking them about that when, verse 47, suddenly a mob was there and one of the 12 named Judas was leading them. He came near Jesus to kiss him, but Jesus said to him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? Now, at this point, the disciples get a bit frisky. We'll come back to them later. And one of them lashes out with a sword and chops off some guy's ear. Uh, Jesus noticed he rebukes the disciples, touches the guy's ear and heals him. Jesus is pretty amazing, isn't he? There's a mob here arresting him unjustly, treating him like a criminal, though he's done nothing wrong. And how does he respond? He has compassion on them. It's clear that there's no human power forcing Jesus towards his death. Jesus could stop this if he wants, but he willingly submits himself to these authorities. Verse 52, Jesus said to the chief priests, the temple police, and the elders who had come for him, have you come out with swords and clubs as if I were a criminal? Every day while I was with you in the temple complex, you never laid a hand on me. But this is your hour and the dominion of darkness. Jesus is no criminal. And we'll see next week that his innocence was clear to other authorities. Yet we find these religious leaders and they're scared to lose their power. They're jealous of the crowds that have started following Jesus. And so they treat him like a criminal. In the middle of night, Under the cover of darkness, they carry out their wicked injustice. They seize Jesus, they lead him away, they bring him into the high priest's house. And there, verse 63, the men holding Jesus started mocking and beating him. After blindfolding him, they kept asking, prophesy, who hit you? And they were saying many other blasphemous things against him. Now, there's irony, of course, in what these soldiers are saying to Jesus, Jesus has prophesied that he'd be in this very position. He knew exactly what was, that was hitting him. He, he knew that he'd be in this position. He told us that all the way through. Here is God the Son in human flesh, dying for men like these very ones who are beating and mocking him, dying to take the anger of God at people like you and me. And so the question is, how are you treating Jesus today? Apart from Jesus, we're all rightfully in the hands of an angry God who's patiently waiting for you to turn from rebelling against Him and trust in Jesus to save and lead you. Have a listen to the way John puts it. One of the other accounts that we have of Jesus' life, death and resurrection comes from John, uh, one of the disciples. In chapter 3, verse 36, he says, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. But whoever rejects the Son will not see life. Instead, the anger of God remains on him. If you've come here tonight and you're rejecting God's rule over your life, you're being your own little king saying, I want to choose the way that I live, then recognize that currently you are under the anger of God. That's the force of the way John finishes there. If you don't respond to Jesus rightly, the anger of God remains on you. It's not like it will suddenly come on you in the future currently upon you and yet there's a way out through jesus death as he's taken that anger and drunk the cup of god's wrath to the dregs if you turn to him and put your trust in him if you ask him for forgiveness with sorrow at the way that you've mistreated him up to this point if you ask him for forgiveness he will receive you and accept you and you can walk away tonight free from the anger of god knowing that jesus has subbed in for you Taken it in himself so that you don't have to. Had an amazing offer from God. And there might be some here tonight who need to take up that offer. Turn to Jesus tonight and walk away from here with eternal life, no longer under God's anger. That's been our first walk through this story as we've seen Jesus, the, the main character, kind of a unique character within the narrative. You and I, we're not like Jesus. There'll be some things that we can learn from him, but My death isn't going to take all of God's anger for the rest of humanity. I'm different to Him. So we're going to go back through a second time. We're going to look at the disciples because they're a bit more like us. As we read through the Gospels, we can often learn from the disciples as they learn from Jesus. So come back to the top of the story. Verse 39, again, Jesus has gone out to the the Mount of Olives to pray and His disciples follow Him. That's been key language for us throughout Luke's Gospel. Jesus calls people to take up their cross and follow him, to give up everything and follow him. The disciples are doing the right thing at this point, following Jesus. Verse 40, while Jesus is praying, he, he tells his disciples, pray that you may not enter into temptation. And the disciples at this point fall asleep. Uh, and We can understand why. It's after midnight. They've just had a big meal, feeling that full tummy. You know what it's like when you had a good meal and it's late at night, you want to sleep. Uh, On top of that, verse 45, Luke gives us another reason why they're falling asleep. He says they're exhausted from their grief. It seems like they finally understand that Jesus is about to die. Earlier on in Luke's gospel, Jesus has tried to tell them this, but they haven't quite grasped it. It wasn't what they were expecting Jesus to do. But it seems like that final meal that Jesus shared with his disciples, they, they understand. They're about to lose this friend that they've walked with for so long. They had to lose this friend that they've been through many trials with, that they've given up everything for. So, I can understand their sleepiness. But when Jesus gets back, he thinks they've done the wrong thing. Notice verse 46. Why are you sleeping? Jesus asked them. Get up and pray so that you won't enter into temptation. Now, when you're reading through the Bible, repetition is a key marker of something significant in a story. When an author repeats something, they want you to take notice. So, do you see the repetition in this scene? Twice, Jesus tells the disciples to pray the same thing. Pray that you won't enter into temptation. If you look back further into Luke, you see this is actually the third time that he's told them this. In Luke 11, the disciples asked Jesus to teach them how to pray. And the answer that Jesus gave included a request, lead us not into temptation. It's a consistent theme that Jesus wants his disciples to be praying. So we need to understand what this particular request is. Temptation in the Bible is more than what we think of it as today. Often when we're speaking about temptation, it's that inner psychological struggle where you recognize that something's wrong, but you're being tempted to do it. That's how we think of temptation. But in biblical language, temptation is more like the situation that you're placed in where that inner psychological temptation might come. So sometimes it's translated in the Bible as a trial. might be a particular time of suffering where through the suffering you could either fall away from your trust in Jesus or continue to trust in Jesus. It's a trial that puts your faith in God to the test. might be a great time of abundance where you're tempted to forget who God is and not give Him thanks as you should. That's what's being spoken of by temptation. As Jesus looks ahead to the death that is about to endure, that for him is his temptation, his trial that is about to undergo. And so when Jesus looks ahead at this trial, how does he respond? He prays. That's what we've just seen. And he calls on his disciples to do the same thing to pray just like he did, to, to steel themselves, to resolve themselves, to prepare themselves for trials by praying. But what do the disciples do? They fail. They fall asleep. They don't pray. And as a result, when the trial comes, when the mob turns up to arrest Jesus, we see that they're not prepared in the same way that Jesus is. Where Jesus calmly surrenders to this mob, the disciples are getting a bit frisky. They're frantically fighting back. Verse 49, when those around him saw what was going to happen, they asked, Lord, should we strike with the sword? Then one of them struck the high priest's slave and cut off his right ear. But Jesus responded, no more of this. You can see the disciples a bit frantic and and really their behavior is laughable. There's just 12 of them or 11 of them at this point. They've got two swords between them and they're facing a mob full of swords and clubs. They've got no chance. But they shouldn't even be fighting in the first place. To fight back against this mob is to go against everything Jesus has taught his disciples along the road to Jerusalem. Jesus has already taught them to love their enemies, to do good to those who would harm them, to bless those who curse them, to pray for those who mistreat them. Jesus has said to them, if someone strikes you on the cheek, turn your other cheeks, they can have another go. Jesus taught them and called them to take up their cross And follow him. To follow him to death. Losing their life even though they don't deserve it. Remember how we saw that Jesus was treated like a criminal even though he didn't deserve it? He's calling his disciples to undergo the same unjust treatment. Now, just before they came out to the Mount of Olives as dinner dinner was finishing up, you might have noticed this last week or in your Connect groups. uh, Jesus did say something a bit strange to them that I want to pick up on here. So have a look back to verse 36 because Jesus says there, now if you don't have a sword you should sell your robe and buy one. So we have got to ask what's going on at that point. I've already shown you how the rest of Jesus' teaching would illustrate that Jesus wasn't actually literally wanting them to go buy swords, they weren't preparing to literally fight at this point. But what Jesus is warning them at that point is that the situation is about to change for his disciples. While Jesus was going through the villages of Israel, people generally were liking Jesus. There were lots of people that were on Jesus' side and when the disciples would go into these villages, they could expect a warm welcome. They could go along and people would feed them and clothe them and help them on their way. Jesus at this point, he knows that he's about to be treated like a criminal. So he's warning the disciples saying, guys, the situation's about to change. No longer can you expect that warm welcome Now you've got to expect to be treated like criminals. That's why when they say they've got two swords, he's like, no, enough of that. I don't actually mean literally get your sword. Just get ready to face unjust suffering. The response to unjust suffering for Jesus' disciples is not violence, but rather as Jesus is encouraging his disciples here, the response should be prayer. And the disciples failed to pray. They put up a weak fight and they run away they desert Jesus. There's one of them who's a bit stronger. His name's Peter. He's the strongest of the lot. He puts on a bit of a bigger show of bravery. Again, you might've seen him at the meal last week. In verse 33, he's sitting around that dinner table and he says to Jesus, Lord, I'm, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. And he seems like he gets it and he's saying, I'm, I'm with you all the way. I'm going to die with you, Jesus. Uh, Jesus, though, knows Peter. Verse 34, I tell you, Peter, He said, the rooster will not crow today until you deny three times that you know me. So let's see what happened for Peter. We get told in verse 54, they seized Jesus, led him away and brought him into the high priest's house. Meanwhile, Peter was following at a distance. They lit a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together and Peter sat among them. Now, so far, Peter is doing better than the rest of the disciples. They've all deserted Jesus, but Peter, he's gone in behind the enemy lines. Verse 56, when a servant saw him sitting in the firelight and looked closely at him, she said, this man was with him too. They're like, all right, here's Peter's chance. He said he's going to go with Jesus. This is his moment to stand up and go, yes, I was with him, you're right. But he denied it. Woman, I don't know him. Strike one. After a little while, someone else saw him and said, you're one of them too. Like, okay, okay, Peter, stuffed up once, but this is his moment. He was so sure that he could do it. He's reflected on his failure, and now he's ready. Man, I'm not, Peter said. Strike two. About an hour later, another kept insisting, this man was certainly with him, since he's also a Galilean. Now, Jesus had come from Galilee, the northern part of Israel. They had distinctive accents up here and probably looked a little bit different. So this guy's looking at Peter going, I reckon this guy's a Galilean. He must have been with Jesus. And you're like, Peter's doing okay. He's been behind enemy lines for an hour now. That's that's a good amount of time to survive. Perhaps this is finally his moment. He's stuffed up twice, but now he's ready. He's going to go, yes, you're right. I'm with Jesus. Arrest me too. But Peter said, man, I don't know what you're talking about. Strike three. And immediately, while he was still speaking, a rooster crowed. Then the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Can you imagine that eye contact? Jesus, is bound as a prisoner and he hears his close friend deny three times knowing him. Peter's denied his Lord and he, he can't hide it. He can't hide from it. The Lord turned and looked at Peter. So Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had said to him, before the rooster crows today, you'll deny me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. And Peter's response at this point is the right response, isn't it? To weep bitterly. I mean, imagine denying your best friend—they're being beaten up by the school bullies—and say, "No, no, I'm not with them." Don't know. Imagine denying your spouse, saying, "No, no, I'm not married to them." Imagine that they see you as you do it. Imagine they see you as you count your own comfort greater than your allegiance to them. Well, imagine denying Jesus. Who loves you so much, who is headed to the cross to suffer God's anger for you, to drink that cup to the dregs. Peter went outside and wept bitterly. When do you deny Jesus? I remember last year I popped around to my neighbor's place for some wine and cheese, and there was another neighbor there, and they were disparaging Christians. Uh, particularly Christians who think that Jesus is the only truth. And they were speaking in such a way so as to challenge me. They knew I was a Christian, but they were speaking in such a way to go, you're not one of those crazy Christians, are you, who think that everyone else is wrong and only Jesus is right? And putting me on the spot. How, how do I respond at this point? Do I say to them, yeah, I do actually believe that? Or do I deny my Lord? When is it for you? What situations have you been put in where that challenge has come up? Do you admit that you're a Christian? Do you deny your Lord? Are there people in your life who don't know that you're a Christian yet? And why haven't you told them? Are there times at work when people are mocking Jesus and they challenge you to speak up and defend yourself? At uni when people are pushing agendas that run contrary to God's truth and they challenge you, you don't disagree, do you? You're not one of those crazy Christians that think gender is just binary. You're not one of those crazy Christians that think sex is only for marriage, that life is only God's to give and take away. You're not a Christian, are you? Do your new university friends know you're a Christian yet? Have you spoken to your work colleagues about Jesus? In these moments, Jesus may not be there physically to make eye contact with you, like he was with Peter. But he just as surely sees you. He just as surely hears you. He hears our denials. He hears our betrayals. And let's be honest, our trials that we face, they're nothing compared to Peter in the courtyard of his enemies here. We saw what happened to Jesus in the last few verses, being beaten up and mocked. And that's what would face Peter if he stood... stood, stood oh, what's the past tense of? This is what would have happened for Peter if he'd said, I'm with Jesus. <laughs> he would have faced the same kind of beating, same kind of physical violence, the same kind of death. But for us, what is it that we're afraid to face? The raised eyebrow? The, the scorn, the lost friendship. And yet Peter, facing such worse trials than us, when he denies Jesus, he recognises that he's done such a terrible thing and he goes out and weeps bitterly. How much more so for us? And perhaps tonight, some of us need to spend some time weeping bitterly. That might be the response that God's bringing in your heart to this part of his word tonight. To recognise your failures with sorrow, In moments where you deny Jesus, don't minimize what you've done. Don't make it a smaller thing than it is. Repent. Weep. It's when you're weeping that you can truly appreciate the wonder of restoration, the wonder of Jesus' forgiveness. Because the story didn't end here for Peter or for the other disciples who had deserted him earlier. And the story doesn't end for us with our betrayals either. After Jesus' death, he rose again to new life and he appeared to Peter and to the other disciples. And we'll see that in the coming weeks. When he appeared to them, he didn't hold against them that they deserted him. He restored them. He forgave them. He loved them. In particular, Peter, he gave Peter three opportunities to, to reavow his allegiance to Jesus, asking Peter, Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Peter got this second chance to come back to Jesus, to receive Jesus' forgiveness. Jesus' death not only turned away the anger of God, but now with the disciples forgiven and restored, Jesus' death set the example for them to follow. Empowered by his Spirit, and they ended up doing a good job of following Jesus into death. Peter later writes a letter to a group of Christians who are facing unjust suffering and we we hear the turnaround in Peter's life. We hear the turnaround in Peter's mentality. Have a listen to 1 Peter 2 and try to hear the overtones of what we've just read in Luke. Peter here writing to a group of Christians facing unjust suffering says, when you do what is good and suffer, if you endure it, this brings favor with God. For you were called to this Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you should follow in his steps. He did not commit sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he was suffering, he did not threaten, but he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that having died to sin, we might live for righteousness. And you see the two themes picked up there. Jesus bore our sins in his body on the tree. That was his prayer, Father, take this cup away from me. And yet he willingly headed to death, bearing our sins. But now his death has become an example for us that we should follow in his steps, that we too should suffer even when it's unjust, that when we're suffering unjustly, we should endure not threaten, not revile, not speak evil of those who are committing this injustice against us. Instead, we should entrust ourselves to the God who judges justly. Entrust ourselves to the God who sees our unjust suffering and will bring it to account. Peter continues this theme in chapter 4. He says, Dear friends, don't be surprised when the fiery ordeal comes among you to test you as if something unusual were happening to you. Instead, rejoice as you share in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may also rejoice with great joy at the revelation of His glory. If you are ridiculed for the name of Christ, I wonder what words you put in next after that. Notice what Peter says, if you're ridiculed for the name of Christ, you're blessed. There's an Instagram photo, hashtag blessed being ridiculed for the name of Christ? Because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. If you're here tonight and you follow Jesus, if you're here tonight and you're a Christian, expect to be treated as a criminal. Expect to be treated unjustly, even though you haven't done anything wrong. That's what's happened to Christians throughout history and is happening to Christians across the globe today brothers and sisters of ours trusting in Jesus, being locked up in prison, locked up in prison camps, losing their lives simply because they proclaimed that Jesus Christ is Lord. It's what happened for Peter in the end. Though in this first scene that we've read in Luke, he, he didn't stand up and say that he was with Jesus. Later on in life, by proclaiming that Jesus Christ is Lord, he got himself crucified. Now, we live in a fairly blessed time here in New Zealand at the moment where we're not yet treated in this way. Yet even at the level of mockery and scorn and rejection that we feel threatened by, we struggle to endure it. Even at that point, we're tempted to deny Jesus. We need to prepare. We need to be prepared to suffer even as Jesus did. Who knows what the future holds for us in this country? The more we get out there in our workplaces, in our university, in our neighbourhoods, proclaiming that Jesus Christ is Lord then the more ridicule is likely to come. The world will hate us because by our words and our lives we declare that its works are evil. And so as we watch Jesus' death here, as we watch his suffering, he's left us an example to submit to unjust suffering and even, as Peter says, to rejoice So after you've finished weeping bitterly at your current denials of Jesus, and you may need to do that tonight. Don't shy away from that. If that's what you need to do with God tonight, weep before Him. But then receive His forgiveness. And prepare yourself for future ridicule by giving yourself to prayer. Praying even as Jesus taught us, lead us not into temptation. Praying as Jesus prayed on the Mount of Olives, praying to our Father, knowing that He loves us. Like Jesus, when we see the trial up ahead, let God know what you want to happen. It was okay for Jesus to pray, Father, take this cup away from me. It's okay for you to pray, Father, I can't handle this. I can't handle what I'm feeling. I can't handle the thought of what's up ahead. But then round out that prayer with Jesus. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Entrust yourself to God who judges justly to our faithful creator. And as you're praying in preparation for that suffering, pray for those who ridicule you. Pray for those who persecute you. We may not be able to miraculously heal their ear like Jesus did, but we can bless them, even as they hate us. Don't let anguish and tears fall silently to your pillow. Cry out to God. Father, is there some other way? Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. We've seen tonight, Jesus has drunk the cup of God's anger to the dregs for you. There's none left if you're putting your trust in Jesus. So trust him. Weep bitterly for the times when you deny him. Definitely don't plan for sin this week and instead prepare to join Jesus in suffering by giving yourself to prayer. So it seems fitting that I close us in a time of prayer, praying for God's strength for whatever trials are coming up ahead this week. Would you join me as I pray? Father, please forgive us. Forgive us for the times when we have denied you, when we've counted our own comfort greater than our allegiance to you. We're sorry. Sorry for not speaking up. Sorry for not trusting that you have a greater plan for us even through death and suffering. Sorry for not following the example that Jesus set for us. Thank you so much that in Jesus' death, we can now come to you forgiven. That you have taken upon yourself all of the, the anger and the justice that needs to be paid. Thank you. Please strengthen us in this coming week. Strengthen us to endure ridicule, to endure suffering. Strengthen us not to sin. And Father, we've got to be honest, we, we don't want to suffer. We don't want to feel on the outside but we trust you. And so we say, not our will, but yours be done. In Jesus' name. Amen.